you're too old to have watched Dexter's Lab. Is that what who I you named your dog after? Children watched it. I don't know. One, two, three, four. Toast. What did you watch as a child? Toast. Grange Hill. Grange Hill. <laughs> Toast. Grange Hill. Grange Hill. I wanted to see uh, what the bad what side of town was up kid? to. I didn't. I was scared of Grange Hill. Television. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to watch Grange. Were you not allowed no. to watch it? No. I wasn't allowed to watch Neighbours. Really? 5.35 was my television cut-off You had to go to bed. because it it's Australian? No, and Top of the Pops oh. was definitely off-limits. Oh, really? Was well, I, was I was allowed to stay. It was just, Black a, just a packet of sauce. <laughs> Wasn't it? Top of the Pops. Pan's People. All those legs. My Pan's People in 1978. How old do you think I am? Yeah. Pan's People were still legs on Top of the Pops, didn't they? Yeah, in the 70s. No, exactly, in the 70s. I wasn't a human in the 70s. You were what were you? Until the final... Yeah. <laughs> a lizard. What were you? A small lizard. An android. An iguana. He was a boy that Geppetto had carved out of wood. <laughs> were you not allowed to watch Top of the Pops because the music was, it was yeah, too basic? I remember watching Kylie Minogue. Mm. Uh, I Should Be So Lucky. Um, mm. Mm. You really should I think be. I think that was definitely after the Pans people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Was it 88? And, and she, 86, I think. Was it? 86, and she was the previous week's number one, which they used to start Top of the Pops with the previous week's number one. Okay. Yeah. So the video of I Should Be So Lucky, which is her in an open top car sat high just in a kind of a black and white striped top just being lucky and singing and it was at that point that I think my parents came in and said what is this horrifying nonsense and then they bought me Kylie uh, the album for Christmas so they obviously was that your first album came around it was my first the first album that I was ever bought um, there were others obviously in the house which yeah. I listened to but so that, that audio Kylie was acceptable it was just visual it was just Kylie visual. I mean it was utter filth just too erotic no. just, I mean, did it goodness me as a young man. Did, Did it, it stir what? me? Yeah. I was about six. That's old enough to be stirred. It was... It Tim's was just <laughs> making faces, <laughs> which suggests <laughs> he can't say what he's thinking. My it first was album. a reinvention of Kylie that was when she became more spinning stirring. Around. Spinning, spinning around. Spinning yeah, around, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, with the hot pants. No, but she I was homely, girl next door. <laughs> yeah. Did she, was still on, she was still on Neighbours. Well, here was the connection, you see. Yeah. I wanted yeah. to watch it because I watched Neighbours. But you weren't allowed to watch Neighbours. Illegally. Um, and so, um, but that was, you know, that Did was you record it on VHS and watch it surreptitiously no. before I'm your 5.30? I was six. I don't think I worked the VHS. You don't get VHS privileges until you're like 12. Is that right? At least that, 12. Yeah. How do you press play? You press play. Yes. Um, I see. Yeah. Eight, and then, I mean, spinning around would have been sort of not a, a decade on. Exactly. When, when she became a sex symbol. Yeah. I think she was a sex symbol in the 80s. It's just that looking back, no one was sexy in the 80s. Well, it, when Chinch. It, when, it got, when it got to the point... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why didn't, you, why didn't you crimp your hair? Um, the, I did. The, uh, the, the point at which I became old enough to understand that Kylie Minogue was attractive and I... 31. I saw yeah. it, which was just last week. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, she, I think she might be my first crush. Okay. But it, it was a crush in that kind of innocent way of I wanted her and Jason Donovan to, in real life, be a thing. Yeah. My first crush was also Australian, but was much younger than that, was Rebecca Elmer Loglu, who played Sophie on Home and Away, which I was allowed to watch. And Neighbours. That's because it was on at five past, uh, ten past I five. I watched Neighbours as well. And then we had tea at six. And then I believe I watched television until about eight o'clock and then went to bed. Uh, Just my, after top of my the My parents were quite slack. Blimey. Yeah. Sophie Privileged. in Home and Away. I saw Privileged Yorkshire upbringing. Well, it was in terms of being raised by a television, yeah. Oh, yes. I can, I can see Sophie. Why. Who? Sophie in Home and Away. Uh, She's my first okay. crush. Rebecca mm. Elmer Loglin. And it, if, we're, if we're delving into my background, my first album is substantially cooler than yours because it was Bad by Michael Jackson. Is that right? Yeah. Which is uh, a year after it's 87, Bad? I think so, yeah. So obviously, you know, give me another That's year, I would have been into Bad. But my Kyle second album, definitely first. Less, less cool, Bross. <laughs> <laughs> my, my first album sits very neatly between those two in okay. terms of cool. Mine was 
Terence Trent Darby. Nice. Really? nice. Yeah, that's nice. He's doing yeah. well to be in the England squad. this is set piece many the podcast where four friends talk football over food the food will be provided by Rory and it is currently in preparation what will you be providing us for not sure it'll involve peppers (laughs) just just, just, you bought me some (laughs) is that the only article that you're a bit like raw peppers a bit like ready steady cook <laughs> Who's playing Ainsley Harriet in his farce? <laughs> Rory Bremner, the famed um, impressionist, uh, mm-hmm. when he had a television show, did a uh, uh, an Ainsley Harriet impression where Ainsley Harriet got so carried away with the ingredients, he started putting his own limbs into a blender. <laughs> and was still incredibly excited about the whole affair. I'm Hugh Ferris. With me are Stephen Wyeth with no eyes in his name. Rory Smith with just the one eye. And a man who announced a few days ago that he's having an official rebrand to include four eyes in yeah. his name. That is... Chinch! Yeah. Well, not, Prince, not Prince even Andy Hinch, clear, yeah. but, it's, but it's Chinch. Prince rebranded, didn't he? So we're now not allowed to use... To a symbol. So I'll move on from Chinch with four eyes to a symbol. I know which symbol you would want to use is for it, my name. Is it the drawing of an, in, of an in-swinging corner? Can you draw that? Yes. Can you draw that? I'll draw Basically, it Chinch wants to be known in the same way that a, a commentator would say his name as he was charging up towards a free kick on the edge of the penalty area. <laughs> That's true. Chinch! It's Cliff! <laughs> uh, get in touch with us if you would like Goal at <laughs> the podcast at setpiecemenu setpiecemenu at gmail.com The first thing is to congratulate Carl Carpenter who tweeted that he had managed to binge through every episode of Set Piece Menu. Uh, this is number 79. No work. That's so impossible. That was an incredible feat. Congratulations we've, to Carl. Even more noteworthy is, is the fact that he saw fit to recommend it thereafter calling it the best podcast out there. Remarkable. Yeah, we've had more episodes than The Wire. So it would have taken him longer to catch up on Set Piece Menu than it would have done if he had not previously consumed The Wire, which of course he will have done. Similar grittiness. Yeah, You're right. I would say. When people you know, look back on their lives, they'll think, what, what are the real kind of things that made me feel like a human? Well, it's either... You know, Sopranos, The Wire, Set Piece Menu. Yeah. You've either got to get your head around Baltimore street slang mm. or our cricket vernacular. That's true. Yeah. Or somebody just going, change, goal kick. But you have to concentrate more on the wire than these podcasts. Yeah. They, yes, they, they so. can just wash over you. So much so. If you're a little hard of hearing like I am, probably need the subtitles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An update from Sam Crocker, who you remember posed the question about how to pronounce the town where he lives near Huddersfield. We all had a go. It is written S-L-A-I-T-H-W-A-I-T-E. And uh, Sam says, Dear Steve, uh, further to my previous email, I would like to confirm that the pronunciation of said town is indeed Slowit. Spelt S-L-A-W-I-T by the locals. Congratulations to Hugh for his accurate guess, Google. Regarding the Upper Mill Bakery that I was controversially rejected from, this is a running theme. This is uh, an Upper Mill Bakery from where I managed to uh, get a very large party ring uh, and Sam was thrown out of. Um, He said that he'd like to clarify that I was rejected on the grounds of intense busyness, such as the popularity of said bakery. This is at least what they told me anyway, uh, though it could have been on secret grounds relating to my appearance or personal hygiene. We shall never know. I'm going to guess it was personal hygiene, Sam, but thanks for getting in touch. (laughs) Could it not be intense busyness in the Yapstam Gary Neville sense of busyness? (laughs) Oh, really? That busy? Yeah. Oh, blimey. Uh, Also, some clarity has arrived via Stephen Chicken, who has been working fastidiously over the last few weeks to keep us informed about a number of things, no doubt hoping for the revered title of Buffalo to be bestowed upon him. I think he's ready. Well, Stephen... It has worked. Welcome to the Brotherhood of Buffaloes on Set Piece Menu. The clarity he brings, or the latest one anyway, is about Steve's notable reference to zebras in the last episode. Zebra. Or zebras, yeah. as he said, for one inexplicable moment. <laughs> if you hear hooves, you should think horses, not zebras. 
Um, Stephen says, <laughs> not our Stephen, the other Stephen, is a medical term, he thinks, i.e. don't go looking for something exotic if a commonplace diagnosis is possible. Still no comment on the fact that Steve said zebras, not zebras. I'm pretty sure it's because I heard it on an American television show, as Stephen Chicken pointed out in a subsequent tweet. And you've so. only ever heard the word zebras once. Yes, yeah, and it was on an American whole, television within show. Within the context of the whole phrase. You've never been to Nosley Safari Park. <laughs> Have Not you nosy. never listened to Woburn. David Attenborough? You mean to Woburn? Woburn yeah. Nice. Uh, Chris Walker also got in touch <laughs> <laughs> on Twitter. After I complain about the appearance of predetermination in some referees' decisions about players who might have dived in the past. This was one of our mm. SPM awards last week. Um, so the idea being that the predetermination suggests that they'll do it again so that they rule either against them or for them, depending on the narrative that they have developed in their mind. Well, Chris remembers that Pierluigi Colina used to prepare for a match by watching the team's previous six games as his own preparation, uh, I imagine that was just so he could see how many players to whom he'd have to administer one of his stairs, mm. so he could pick them out nice and early. Um, but thanks too to those uh, who have noted that Loris Carius's apology was very much in keeping with the conversation that we had in episode 74. Mm. Probably more um, expected or more worth it. Are we in agreement that that was acceptable? Yes. Yeah, I think yes. In, in that circumstance, yeah, that, that wasn't a that wasn't a social media, I'm going to say sorry, because yeah. we've lost a game. It was a... Heartfelt. Heartfelt. He was clearly, I was in Kiev, and he I was clearly suffering yeah. mm. badly. And I think it probably, he felt that he needed to do it. And I also su- suspect it made him feel a bit better to yeah. apologise. So, no, I think that was valid. Yeah, it was a cathartic process, yeah, wasn't it? Exactly. We'll hope, hopefully get, help him on the road yeah. back to... Are there, are there players or goalkeepers that we would, if they did that, would be a bit more cynical? Joe about? Hart. <laughs> really? Yes. Seriously? Yes. Wow. There we go. We uh, solved that problem. It took us an hour last time. Very quickly. You were <laughs> waiting. You, you knew that question seconds. was coming. Joe Hart's transformation from shampoo salesman into <laughs> person that most people correctly dislike is fascinating. His fall, his fall from grace has been really quick. Yeah. Joe Hart. It has, but in a, both, both in a off and on the field. Yeah, exactly. Sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so do get in touch with anything you'd like to comment on uh, at setpiecemenu, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. As did Alan Shepard to say this. Isn't he an astronaut? Alan Shepard. Is it the, that Alan Shepard? Well, thanks, Alan, for getting in touch from the International Space Station. Uh, does Set Piece Menu, asks Alan, have time to discuss the World Cup and its status in the game in the next two weeks? I'm sensing a fair amount of fatigue in the run-up to this World Cup, partly, I think, due to geopolitical nervousness about Russia, as well as the fact that there's a feeling that international football isn't the pinnacle anymore. Am I in the minority to be excited about the World Cup? For me, there's a sense of something different compared to club football. The World Cup offers a sense of something a little new. I'm looking forward to seeing teams like Morocco, who I've heard good things about, but have had little experience of watching. And there's something great about the stories thrown up in a World Cup too. Everyone is watching, and the fact that it's only once every four years means the moments stick in the mind far longer. But am I just a misty-eyed romantic who's willfully ignoring the evidence in front of him, including the geopolitical issues? Well, Alan, firstly, yes, we do have time in the next two weeks. And secondly, do you even know the incredible serendipitous nature of your email, which arrived literally moments after a text from Rory to our WhatsApp group saying almost word for word that Can he you would get like some to peppers? talk oh, <laughs> about yeah. not only the World Cup, but indeed the subjects upon the World Cup that you mentioned. This, you've made Alan Shepard up. Alan Shepard is absolutely real. Alan is fast becoming um, a buffalo because he does tend to email quite a lot with loads of excellent suggestions Good. about subjects that we're going to push down the road. Anything from Yuri Gagarin yet? No, Yuri Gagarin is most firmly dead. Is he? Oh, I'm he worried that Alan Shepard is actually me As in a some name. sort of <laughs> drunken haze. Are you writing under pseudonyms yeah. of men who've walked think, on the moon? I think I might be sleep, sleep writing. 
We wouldn't call you. you. We wouldn't call you, you Alan Shepard. I might call. Name. I might call myself Alan Shepard. That uh, might be my. You'd be Dick Power or someone like that. You wouldn't be Alan Shepard, <laughs> would you? Well, only if he's only if he's a twelve-year-old with no sense of humour. <laughs> what is it? Jack Jack Reacher checks into motels under the names of Yankees second baseman. Rory's starting to write articles under the names of men who have sat on top of space rockets. I did have a, a nom de plume. <laughs> is that how you get into space? Yeah. You just sit on top of the <laughs> rocket. Yeah. I'll just hold on tightly. <laughs> what was your nom de plume? I can't remember now. It was for a newspaper I used to work for. When I was think, it Baxter Montgomery? I think I want I wanted to write a story that without making it clear that it was mine. It was obvious where the source was. I can't remember what it was. That's really annoying. But I have written under what what in the business we refer to as a cod name because cods, famously the fish, are always making up names for themselves. <laughs> Uh, that I, before at least once. Uh, well, if it comes to you, let us know. Mm. Maybe in the next couple of weeks, which is what we will be doing in the next couple of weeks. Apart from talking about some of the things that Alan, real or not, he's uh, not mentioned real, he's made in his email. Uh, mainly because we won't be able to talk about it at all while the World Cup is actually happening because Rory slash Alan will be out in Russia. So we've decided to sidestep it with our summer pods that will be coming up over the next few weeks following these two. So let's do it now while we're all here and while any of the theories that we posit in the next two shows remain untarnished by the facts that will no doubt render them completely wrong once the tournament starts. So a two-part discussion will follow over the next two weeks. Next week, we'll talk about the football and whether it's still either the best or the most enjoyed. But on today's pod, let's ask this question. Is the World Cup a blessed relief? With all the tribalism and Twitter trolling, is the World Cup a welcome break from the toxicity of club football? Is the atmosphere around the club game now so bad that the World Cup, corrupt and politicised though it is, is a bit of a relief? And how ironic that tribalism, usually associated with national identity, is now used to describe the butting of heads domestically and the age-old rivalries played out on the global stage seem to have relaxed just a little. Maybe that's just globalism, or maybe we need a new war. Uh, oh, nice. <laughs> the, um, might get one. The, um, I think, yeah, I think partly it's the fact that within, within international football, those rivalries, for various reasons, have, st- have been a bit kind of... Have start, they've, stopped, they've stopped simmering, let's mm. put it that way. So I think that's partly because you, you see those games all the time. England have played Germany about a million times in the last three years and Germany have played Argentina a lot and played Brazil and what have you. So you see them a lot, so it's quite hard to kind of to get as worked up about them as as they used to be, as you used to. But on the flip side, it's also kind of that where, the, where there are games that have political tension attached to them, it it actually matters, like, it matters if Turkey play Russia. Obviously, they won't. It's Turkey out in the World Cup. But you know, if you get games between countries that don't like each other, then then you kind of think, well, do you know, it's fair enough that those two countries don't like each other because they have a genuine geopolitical sort of rivalry. Whereas, not that it's not not saying nationalism is good, but at least it's rooted in something. Whereas, what's hit me with the with the club game, and this might just be the end of the season talking. It's just so stupid. The, the the tribalism is just so stupid. It's so pathetic. I'm looking forward to things that are rooted in historical massacres. That, yeah, actually <laughs> have some, some, some basis in the loss of life. Brilliant. No. There's a, actually a reason for rivalry rather <laughs> yeah, than no, just no, like no, made no, up dodgy yeah. refereeing decisions that you think cost um, you three points last season. You, have, you yeah. have to dislike them because yes. they're not you. Yeah. you know, yeah. and, this, and it, it, is, it is at times tiresome um, and particularly... Um, I think a lot of people felt it after the Champions League final where 
everybody piled on Liverpool if they weren't Liverpool fans due to the absolute glee that they were experiencing because of the way that Liverpool lost the Champions League final. And there will, there will be those who will get intense pleasure out of that. But it does it does become a little bit tiresome because it goes on. The best on. example is is with Spurs and it's the it's the putting the pressure on trophy. I don't want to dwell on this, but it's been really annoying me and I'm delighted to have a vent for it. So there was a, a joke that's done the rounds about how Spurs, it's sort of a picture of Spurs's, of a, well, of a trophy cabinet or a cabinet and it says that Spurs's has just dropped the, put the pressure on, kept up with Chelsea, I don't know, got to the semi-finals of the FA Cup or something, came within a goal. It's all these, these things that Spurs haven't achieved. <laughs> if you are a football fan and you cannot recognise that Spurs over the last three years have made extraordinary progress to become a genuine force in English football, then you're a moron. It's ridiculous to claim yeah. that Spurs have not been transformed under Pochettino. And if you think they need a trophy to to be counted as, as a success, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. But don't pretend that there hasn't been an incredible story around Spurs and they're getting praise for a reason. And it's that kind of vapid nonsense that after 10 months, and it gets worse every year, gets really tiresome. And there is something about the World Cup, which, as you say, is inherently... Like, it was awarded in, in what I think we can safely say was a not entirely uncorrupt process. Um, the <laughs> lovely Russian, lightotes there, lovely. You're going to a country where there is still endemic racism in the stands, where there is genuine fear for LGBT fans on the streets that, again, may well not have won the tournament entirely fairly, that is at the centre of countless... I did a, th- I did a thing on it for our, um, our like special preview supplement and... I thought, right, what I'll do is I will briefly summarise the problems between Russia and the West. In what I had what, a thousand words, quite long. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eight hundred words later of Russia, r- the problems between Russia and the West, and the West since the World Cup was awarded. You were I, still writing. Your I was still writing. <laughs> I was still writing about Sergei Skripal, <laughs> and yeah, who, was, so, who was now Sergei Skripal has essentially ruined Chelsea's chances of getting a new stadium. So you yeah, can, well, there's your final two hundred words. Exactly. <laughs> that was before. In fact, that was before Ramich pulled out. But the yeah the. There is there is nothing romantic about the World Cup because FIFA have, over the course of the last 40, 50 years, managed to destroy that completely. But there is something refreshing about it, even when you do have the potential for international games between countries that do genuinely dislike each other and we should not condone violent, politicised nationalism, obviously. But it, the fact that it's not vapid, the fact that it is rooted in something, and the fact that it, I think the, the, stun, the sting has been drawn recently by, by various things... That, like the lack of importance of international football and the fact they play each other constantly, the big, the big nations, it does feel refreshing and a bit different. And that is, I'm I'm looking forward to the World Cup in a way that I thought I that I did not think I would. Is it a tournament you can sit and just watch and enjoy because you might not have a vested interest because England presumably aren't going to win the thing? So I, I tell you to find the last few tournaments you can enjoy just watching them without worrying about how the competition goes. Where normally when you're watching domestic football, there's normally a lot more riding on it that's what I always find with the World Cup it's a bit it is a relief you can sit back and just watch the football and see how it unfolds because I'm not really that concerned about who's going to win it are you looking forward to the World Cup despite the fact that Sky don't have the right the trouble is the 1978 World Cup in Argentina can never be bettered because, because there hasn't been enough confetti or child. ticker tape ticker tape Mario <laughs> Kempes if he was playing in this World Cup it would be much better I don't even know whether he's still alive he is he is yeah. is he well, still that, playing is the next question probably that comes not making those runs in the channels that he used to do back in 78 I've got a but phone number for Mario Kempes should we find out if he's still playing do you, yeah. want, to, do you want to call Mario Kempes you can you can get me in touch with Mario Kempes yeah. 
Oh, I was only nine when that World Cup was on, but it's the World Cup. I will always... And watching things as a kid, things change over the years. You become older and more cynical, and the game is far less enjoyable. Um, but that's, <laughs> oh, where I, that's where I maybe differ from you guys. You know, you guys played on you know, Sunday League. I played international football, remember? <laughs> so clearly, never played in a major tournament, that's but let's just fault. ignore that Making fact. Making up a thigh injury. So me, I do see things very differently because I've been on the inside... And international football is truly dreadful. Yeah, you didn't like it, did you? It's appalling. It's keep the ball football. It's terrible. But but you've just described a moment where you now, because you don't care who wins, actually enjoy it in a different way. But you've said that it's terrible. So do do the things cancel each other out? It's when it becomes knockout. Mm. Then to me, it starts getting a bit... Because the World Cup seems to be in two phases. Don't get beaten get through the group stages, then it gets quite exciting and it becomes a bit more like club football where teams will take a bit more of a chance and then it becomes really interesting. That tends to happen in most World Cups. Uh, but the 78 World Cup was just... What's your first World Cup memory? So, you must so have what? 1990. 86. Oh, that's a good word. That 86 was and, and, yeah. and well, disliking Argentina in the same World way that Cup. you like them. Yeah. Well, so 1990 is a great example because 1990 was objectively a terrible World Cup. Oh, I thought it was the football. World the football Cup. was incredibly defensive. There were no goals. Uh, everyone was passing the ball back constantly. Pavarotti, though. Pavarotti yeah, made it. Yeah, yeah. My, main, my, my main memory of 1990 is Sergio Rotocea, who, it turned out, had the answers to penalties. Just kept saving penalties. He's this yeah. guy that they brought in off the, off the beach, just saved some penalties. Neri Pompido's injured, of course. It's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Sergio Rotocea <laughs> comes in. I think he's now got a cafe called I Saved Loads of Penalties or something <laughs> like that. Uh, but 1990 was an awful World Cup, but I remember it really fondly. And obviously that's because I was, the right, I was eight. Yes. And the, the World Cup that you remember best is always the one that, that first captures your imagination. Those World Cups, 78, 1990, mm. they, there is something that they had that the 2018 World Cup, World Cup will not have, which is a big miss, and that's mystery. Mm. Because we know so much now. The, the, most fans will be familiar with, I don't know, 75, 80% of the players. There's yeah, still a true. little bit. Yeah. There's still a little bit. So what mysteries I mean, are you looking forward to in 2018? Alan, for example, who started this conversation without any prompting from any Alan. unreal people like Rory Smith, um, talks about the fact he's looking forward to seeing Rocker because he hasn't had an opportunity yeah. to see a lot of those players. And if you just, I mean, Steve's kids are doing the, I say kids, Steve is doing the Panini sticker album. Of course. Um, and <laughs> We're look, getting there, slowly, Even though gradually. those squads aren't necessarily the most accurate because they were guessed upon about seven years ago. But you, you realise as you go through, there are a lot of these players, even though we know so many more players, and you write 75%, mm. but there's still the 25% that we don't know very much about. Mm. How often have we gone into a World Cup expecting things to happen in a way um, that was suggested the previous two years, the previous four years? And teams like Cameroon have beaten Argentina, Senegal have beaten France. You've got, you've got these moments where you don't necessarily know a lot about those teams. Panama, Peru, these, these are teams that I, I do not know a lot no. of the players. And for Panama, I don't think I know any of the players, really. And that's having looked... Looked at the sticker album. You're not missing much. <laughs> well, you see, I'm not, I'm not missing much, but then they might do something extraordinary. They might be England. Yeah, they might true. do something against Belgium. I don't, I don't know if that would count as extraordinary. <laughs> that's true. A they goal, might, they a might goal be a good draw team. is quite highly yeah. probable, yeah. I would imagine. But, the, but these, these are the things that you, you don't know 100%, so therefore no. I think that's why it's different to club football, where you do know a lot more because you are seeing them more regularly and you are seeing the, the same teams, the same yeah. players. We've got to hope, and it should be, more interesting than watching domestic football because it should be a little bit tactically unpredictable because we know a little bit less about those mm. players and because as as a unit I know we'll probably talk more about this next week but they'll be less well drilled they'll be less familiar with each other the players so that should add a layer of uncertainty that we don't get from watching mm. the Premier League in particular You've, you'll have a good idea won't you of how a game will play out or, or even in the Champions League or elsewhere in, in Europe 
I, I just hope we, we don't see what we saw at the last Euros, where teams, a bit like you said in, in 1990, are cancelling each other out. That, that draws become so valuable yeah, yeah. That, that, go, you know, that we won't see enough Three two, you know, dramatic three two the wins. Group stages, you never, you never do. Teams going for it. We will come on to this more in the next yeah. episode about the football and the nature mm. of the oh, football. Okay. Whether it's tactically interesting, whether it develops in a way that suggests that other people might follow, or it follows a pattern, or whether people are too scared. We'll, we'll come to yeah. whether the, the football is good. But I appreciate that that helps to generate memories if it's exciting. Yeah, and 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 the, the, the tribalism thing to to quote a phrase that you and I heard when we were in Vietnam together. Same, same, but different was how people used to describe mm. Hugh and I is that there will be a lot of the similar emotions that you get from watching your club team. Mm. And that's why I think sometimes a World Cup would be better if your nation wasn't involved, especially from an England point of view, because you will still have that that blind optimism to start with that something miraculous could happen. You'll get carried away during the games in in the hope that uh, victory will will come at the end of it. And then there'll be the retribution when England lose, the finger-pointing, the blame. and The tearing up of mm, of everything to start again. Publishing of referees' home phone numbers. (laughs) Root and and branch branch reviews. (laughs) (laughs) So there are a a lot of the same. But I wonder whether that's an English... Is that an English-specific thing? No, I don't think so. I I think it's probably true of... Of all well, the, the, of all major countries, that the way that England do it might be a specifically English thing because they are particularly or have been a little bit rudderless. Whereas quite often the other reaction to it is a very very emotional response because it is a nationalistic feeling mm. that has been either undermined or let down. So you will have quite a lot. I mean, just look at Brazil in the last World Cup. That whole tournament was based on an emotional attachment between players and country wanting to represent their country, wanting to win the. World Cup for mm-hmm. Brazil yeah. in Brazil and in the end it was their undoing because they were so emotionally overwrought by the time they got to the semi-final they forgot to defend yeah. or indeed play football in any sort Foolish of way that really. well, actually mm. you take you take the German uh, way as being hopefully this doesn't sound too much like a cliche as being the exact opposite where when things went wrong with them after Euro 2000 mm. they very systematically and carefully plotted a, a, a path back to the top of the game and they won the World Cup yeah. in 2014 yeah. so there are there are two ways of going about it but both even though they are different, are a representation of that country, which is, funnily enough, and again, not trying to stereotype, but the facts probably lay it out a little clearer than normal, is that you've got this emotional connection with the World Cup that you don't feel every time your club plays because your club is doing the same thing every year and it's you're judging it against the expectations of what has just happened. Mm. Whereas the World Cup happens every four years, you are judging it against expectations, not of what happened last time, but of the whole four years that have happened in between, which has either built things up or if you're England has, has collapsed any sense of expectation. And so there is a sense of mystery because you genuinely, because four years have passed, you genuinely don't know what your team is going to do. And so you fashion your emotional responses over a, a whole a whole gamut of possible outcomes. Unless you follow England, in which case you do know what your team is going to do <laughs> and they will do the same thing that they've done at every but, major tournament over the last But you year. hope that they won't <laughs> beforehand and that is that is the eternal kind of ridiculousness of, of England and being an England fan, I would imagine. But, but there is still a sense that the emotional... The emotional possibilities are still there before every World Cup. It could be terrible, it could be great, it could be just meh. But something will happen to make that emotional connection stronger. And and at least England's presence in the competition, from an English point of view, is a catalyst for the the interest 
in the World Cup overall. And, and if you can, then you can enjoy other matches in a way that you might not be able to enjoy other games in the Premier League, for yeah, example, because yeah. you're not you're not what you know. If, if if you support Manchester United, you're going to be watching Liverpool against Manchester City and hoping they both lose and they each get <laughs> three that players sent off. In, in every, even though it's not your team playing, it still affects your team. So one of the big differences between watching club football and watching the World Cup is that the other games are relatively meaningless, and uh, until it gets mm-hmm. maybe to the last round of uh, group stage games and maybe you've got you know a, a, an interest one way or another in, into where teams finish in the group but you should just be able to to embrace the football and in, and enjoy it without having any sort of underlying interest one way or another in who prevails is there more of a cynicism Rory was talking about the the, pro, the process of World Cups and being given to certain countries mm. is that is that taking the gloss off World Cups with fans and they're thinking hang on a minute is it really about the football or I is think it by become... the time it starts no. The football and, takes and, over then. Yeah. The process and, of how we get there. And is, FIFA rely on that. Well, yeah, it's not. It's not to. just FIFA. It's the countries that host it as well. And this is the this is the great sort of shame of football, is that we spend eight years pointing out the the corruption in the in the bidding process and the the I mean the wide, widespread crime at mm. FIFA, and then Russia will play Saudi Arabia. And we'll all be like, oh, do you know what? that Saudi striker strike did, didn't they? That's a, that's a great kit that the Nigerians have got. This would be brilliant. So because it's the World Cup. And, and it's true about the Nigerian kit, by it the way. It is amazing. It's sensational, what, particularly the training gear. Can I recommend that? But what you that? said is quite true. That I, I think that, that's a crucial thing. And that is, is maybe the difference. And it's why the World Cup feels like a relief. Is that so you, during the lead season, as Steve said, everything, everything that happens, you relate back to your club. And that's not just that you want City or Liverpool to lose or whatever. It's that you're looking at Newcastle playing Brighton and thinking, well, if, I hope Brighton win this because we're playing them next week yeah. and they, they might have taken their half the ball. Like that, that's how fans function. And that's, that's natural. I think the bond with the World Cup is initially... For some people, I think it's the nation. And I think there are people who will, sw- will switch off when England get knocked out and, or lose interest. And the papers... A lot of people will switch on when that happens for exactly well, I, the opposite I, I don't support England. And that's, I'm on record as saying that. I enjoy tournaments that England are not in. I think they are better, and I think English football can learn more from them. But I think there's a lot of people who have a bond not with a team, but with the tournament. And that comes from those childhood memories, whether it's 78 or 1990. Will a, a nine, ten year old watching this World Cup feel the way that we did about the yeah. first World You think yeah. it'll still yeah. be the same? That it's, is still that there's something magical the about it. Can't yeah. help but. Well, I, yeah. I, I saw Deli Ali uh, a, f- a few weeks ago for a piece about the World Cup and he, he can't remember his first tournament but he remembers the sensation of, of being at home while a tournament was on yeah. and he he's almost listening to someone t- sort of talk about like a, a J.M. Barry book or something like <laughs> it's all this sort of you know the you know, sun-dappled light and, and the light bouncing off the ap- apple trees and stuff and it's all very sweet and he remembers that sensation of, of the whole country being just kind of gripped by the World Cup. And this was in 2010. Well, no, it was. I, mean, that, I, th- I think that's 2006, 2004 or 2006. Right. Yeah, that's his yeah. first tournament. But there is, there is a bond that you have with World Cup football that comes from those memories of a child. And th- th- for all the sin, th- it's become very sort of fashionable to, to talk down international football. And I've done it. And I think, th- you know, for the vast majority of the time, that it's, it's fair enough because international football is a bit rubbish. But during a World Cup and you you know Chinch you didn't go to a major tournament so which is, which is a travesty really it yeah. is a travesty talk about George Best and but, you know, Ryan Giggs but come on Andy <laughs> Hinsley <laughs> in but the same breath the, but there is something kind of magical about a World Cup that, and it takes you once it starts and un- until then all of, the, all of the other stuff matters all the, the stuff with Russia and, and the corruption in the process that, that is all really important and it will continue to be important but for a month 
we will forget about it. And that is what FIFA rely on, and it's what is what Putin and then Qatar are relying on that the party will kind of overtake everything. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to watching this World Cup with the kids and their mates because hopefully you'll be able to to view it through the through the eyes of them and get their joy and it'll it'll suddenly seem fresh and new again and we, you know talking about doing the, the sticker album and by the way Panini if you're listening we do still need the England shiny so if you've got any <laughs> that is proving quite hard to source so if you could send one our way that if would this be... was to air in November 2024 you'd still be without yeah. that England shiny if you, if you could send that our way that would be useful uh, so I think there, there will be some joy to be taken out of it in that regard but Rory raised something interesting about how it's saying he is not an England fan and would not be following England I wonder whether that is a uniquely English approach to major tournaments because there is an element of jingoism that goes along with supporting the national side at major tournaments and and there are those who simply shun England very often they are supporters of successful club sides Mm. because they get joy and triumph from from the club team they support they don't necessarily jump on board with the hope that England are going to, to win a major trophy in the way that maybe fans of, of teams outside the top flight or further down the Premier League food chain will will rally behind. You know, they're the, they're the, would have the flags on their, their cars. They're the ones buying up England kit from Sports Direct, etc. So it, I, I wonder whether that is it. And that is something that does add to the tension and does draw parallels with domestic football is that thing that we have in England that there are those who simply rally against supporting the national team and there are those who very much bang the drum in support of England and we do have and that very much disparate society yes, nothing we? in between yeah. I, I get frustrated by fans of teams who are successful perennially successful and say oh, I don't care about the World Cup international yeah. football's rubbish I don't care about England but they they are saying that because their team provides them with all the emotional yeah, the emotional exactly, kind yeah, of satisfaction yeah, yeah. they need because they are always winning. And they titles probably know it's going to happen again, so they're safe in the knowledge that. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's, it's very easy for you yeah. to say, "Oh, yeah, well, that doesn't matter." But I imagine if England were to win the World Cup, a lot of those people would not be able to stop the instinct of being incredibly excited and, and happy about that. But it's very easy to say that because England, in our lifetimes, have never won the World Cup and look very very far away from doing that. It and isn't uniquely English. Just Fiorentina. Fiorentina fans don't support Italy. Why is that? Uh, not sure. Is that not a, some sort of historical thing yeah, about there must them, be some... the division of Italy? Mm. Or it, it may be that. It 18th, might be It might be to do century. with the Risorgimento or it might be because Italy didn't call up enough Fiorentina players. It's very hard to tell with right, football okay. fans. It's either deeply held or it's pathetic. <laughs> uh, I suspect the big club thing has become truer and truer across Europe as the kind of divisions between Real and Barca have have. Do, do Barca deeper. fans support Spain? I think I don't know. I'd, I'd love to know. I'm not sure. I mean, I I I can't imagine that sort of hardcore Catalan nationalists would support Spain. I'd be very surprised. And equally, hardcore Basque nationalists. I can't believe that they'd support Spain. Um, Bayern fans, I suspect, do support Germany, but I think they will probably feel the defeats less keenly than fans of Kaiserslautern. Um, and it'll be, be true in France that you know PSG fans. Big, this this is the thing that club football has become so all-encompassing, and we're all part of that, especially Chinch. Mm, that um, absolutely, it, it has it kind of it, it has come to cast everything else in the shade, and it's where we don't need to go into is club football bigger than international football? Because it very very obviously is that that ship has sailed. But I do think that every so often, every four years, in fact, <laughs> the World Cup comes along, and everyone kind of forgets all the stuff outside it and it does still have this power and Steve's right that, that there are probably people who, who strenuously object to the England team the 
it's not that I, I, I don't want them yeah. to lose necessarily. I'm just not particularly fussed about them being there. It doesn't interest me. And I, I, I don't mind that. And I understand if you support United or, or Liverpool. I think those two clubs are, are probably good examples of those whose fans don't rally behind England in the same way. I understand you've run that full gamut of emotions pretty much every season. You're in contention for four trophies at the start of every campaign. So I understand that you need the summer off almost in terms of that emotional roller coaster. What I don't understand is this sort of almost sneering objection of mm. the fact that someone who supports Burnley or Peterborough or Plymouth is suddenly waving a St George cross in, in support of England. Why shouldn't they get yeah. behind? Is that not nation? that's partly at least well I don't know. Is that partly to do with the the what the cross yeah. symbolises? There's, that a, there's a political yeah, thing, yeah. isn't there? I there's, think there is a yeah I mean it's used the word jingoism yeah. before they we, we we do have a we have a strange relationship as a as a nation with our flag, don't we? Does, every, what it does everything have to have a meaning now as well? Anything yeah. that you do, you've got to say, well, why are you doing what, that? Yeah. So you've got to scratch the surface and go beyond. Whether it's a sporting event or anything, now you've got to be so careful about your support for anything, and you have to justify it. Maybe yeah. in many ways, is that is that right, or is that just modern society? It's probably just modern society. Well, the, the thing about the flag is interesting, though, because if you, I watched a documentary on France '98 uh, a few weeks ago, and and they made the point that kind of the scenes after the semi-final when the French beat Croatia. Croatia were leading in a World Cup semi-final in 1998. Croatia, and then Croatia could, have, stepped up. could have got mm. to a World Cup final. That's the bloody World Cup, that <laughs> is. The, although you don't want the underdogs going too far like in 2002, it ruins it for everybody. The, um, uh, we all know why host that, nation. Yes, exactly, we all know why that was. No, 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 no. Paraguayan referee. Yeah. Was he Paraguayan? The, I think it was Paraguayan. Ecuadorian. Ecuadorian yeah. referee. Sorry, um, Paraguay. Later My done, apologies. I think, for drug smuggling. Interesting right, guy, right. that referee, yeah. Moreno, something Moreno. Um, by- Byron, Brian Moreno. Brian, definitely Brian. Brian. <laughs> Very much a Brian. Very much a Brian. Uh, that uh, was his cod name. The, um, <laughs> the cod called Brian. Because as we the, all know, cods are called Brian. The Yeah, I've completely lost my thread now. No, it was, it was an excellent point. You were talking about uh, the semi-final. You didn't, yeah, Croatia you don't want them, leading. You, you don't, don't want them yeah. going too far. But the in the scenes after... After that semi-final on the Champs Elysees, there were loads of tricolours, and and the the people on the documentary were talking about how that was quite a an unusual display of French nationalism, and it and it maybe changed a little bit. That team didn't have the the social effect it was meant to. The Black Blomber was was meant to unify France, and obviously that's not happened. But the seeing the the tricolour f- flown so proudly by so many people changed the way the French kind of identify with their flag. The same thing obviously famously happened in Germany in two thousand and six when they got to the semi-finals that that fundamentally changed the German relationship with their flag because it hadn't been displaying your national pride in Germany after the war was not mm. something you did until 2006 when it became much more kind of not acceptable but almost fashionable to to fly the German flag it's interesting that in in 1966 if you look in the stands at Wembley it's not just crosses St George's the vast majority of flags are Union, Union Jacks, Jacks yeah. Ah, yeah. Oh, okay. and it's the same if you look at fans in the 70s Liverpool's European Cup finals this is this is a club that now has flags that say, say that say we are Strauss, not English. Union Jacks, they fly the Union flag. You wonder whether England kind of need that moment to to change the relationship with the Cross of St George, which does have certain overtones yeah. in this country. But then the problem with that is that maybe we did have that moment and it went the wrong way. Does nineteen ninety semi finals, great run, Gaza's tears, the the middle classification of, of football, but at the same time a lot of the images in that tournament are of hooligans rioting in Italian cities with the cross of St George everywhere so that's where that kind of comes from I think and that that is part of the the sneering is partly yeah. to do with football but it's partly to do with something else if if a m- miracle happened and England won the World Cup and England fans descended on Trafalgar Square with, with George Crosses they'd 
be an awful lot of battening down of the hatches and mm. demanding that the water cannons were rolled out. It wouldn't be. <laughs> it wouldn't be that. Or you, it's difficult to imagine well, it being that joyous celebration as you've just described with with French and German. But, but, but you that might that's be partly that because the English don't. I don't think the English celebrate very well. But that that, that might well, be. A f- it's not used to it. How to do it properly? That, that might be a, uh, a football thing. When England won the Ashes in 2005, there was a celebration in, in Trafalgar Square, and there were a lot of St George's flags. Yeah. But that's a cricket crowd. So again, it might be the problem with with the fact that it's football. Yeah. And we've beaten the Australians, which everybody can get behind. <laughs> That's true. That is the one thing that unites, that unites <laughs> the country. Everybody. Yeah. The world. The, what is the difference between, Steve mentioned jingoism, we've mentioned nationalism, mm-hmm. but also kind of passionate patriotism in a positive way. Because as England followers, if we're not necessarily England fans, we always talk about the fact that there is uh, a disconnect between the players seemingly and the country and yet we look at all the other countries lining up for the national anthem and really feeling it and caring and arms interlocked and their hands on their chests over the uh, the emblem on their on their shirts that is seen as a universally by by us anyway but a positive thing about the connection between them and their country they understand what it means because they are representing their country on a global scale sometimes a country that doesn't get either a lot of good or bad pr or might be only bad PR. So, you know, we look at that and we say, that's fantastic. That should be applauded. Why can't England players do that? And yet when England fans or English people do that, it's said to be jingoistic. So where's the where's the line here? And, well, and is not, there are, a happy are we, medium? Are we as emotional a country as Brazil or France? But we are. We, Sp- are we? I, I think we po- are, are, but are in different though? ways. Post-1997, ni- post which famous... Oh. Sort of, of course, for the death of Princess Diana and one of Chinch's knee injuries. Absolutely. Two events. Just one of the 12. Two events that really did bring something something different out in the country. It's yeah, that we are beating Australia. We are, quite an, we, we, are now, we? we are now quite an emotionally overwrought nation. I'd say we are too emotionally overwrought. But, but, I don't, but I don't think we'd audit it. I think that's the problem. Exactly. We're not we, we, it. we misdirect it because we're, we're either trying to do what other people have done so we don't feel it instinctively or we are channeling it in the wrong way and we it's when vote for Brexit. Support. <laughs> it's when passionate support of your country becomes nationalism. And that's the... Is that is that true in every country or is it just we see I, that happening? I we think, think that's it, what's happening. I the think, rise of populism in Eastern yes. and Central Europe. <laughs> I think it must be true in every country. I, th- I, don't, I don't think... I don't... Yeah. I think when it, does a passionate support for your country become dangerous? It mo- I don't know. Or do people attach themselves to it and when you, use when that you as When you riot in bars in Marseille, yes. prompted, we must once again say, by Stephen Martin. I was there. Fans. I was there. I was across <laughs> the square in Marseille, and it's the first Did time I've Steve, ever seen... Did you see Steve chair? Steve. That was, it was, I was there. It was, it was pretty terrifying. He was, disc- he, was, he was the ringleader. He was, he was Ray Winston. Uh, not saying Ray Winston. There was a, uh, there was a brilliant... That. Clearly he wouldn't do that. It was br- terrifying to be sitting, drinking my cappuccino, where across the square there was people... Fighting with the it was the, the first time I've ever seen it firsthand that type of behaviour. Just love the idea. Just did not move. Just carried on sipping his cappuccino. Oh, as this, Nikki, this, is abso- this is absolutely yeah, outrageous. I have my I have my trainers on in case it really uh, got nasty. <laughs> the, um, did, the, away. did the smell of the tear gas? Did it sort of disrupt your enjoyment? Of it it the, did uh, of the, the of the salad nissoise. I was enjoying it. It did take a bit of the uh, enjoyment out of it. You know, stop rioting, please. I'm trying that, to I've, got, I've got a hard boiled egg to be getting into. <laughs> But what, see, what was extraordinary, being in Marseille, what was extraordinary about, I know it's a European Championship, it's not a World Cup, but they, why, you know, you wouldn't let, or you shouldn't let a large group of people under any circumstances gather in one small area with supermarket bought boxes of booze. No, but they seem to want to do that because they corralled them into one place where, and all the riot police were, that they knew where it was going to happen and they want it to be contained. 
So it seemed to be this pub on. It was where it was all going to happen. They knew that, and that's where it did happen. We're sacrificing this pub. There was a brilliant interview in the FT the other day with a brilliant piece on on, on the Russian ultras who have been. Uh, I think informed by the FSB that they are not to cause any trouble during the World Cup. Yes, it would look bad. Yes, uh, and the punishments might be quite severe. Uh, but the, there was one of the Russian ultras had said on the on, obviously on tradition of, of anonymity had said you know in Marseille we saw a big group of, of fans with a Birmingham flag uh, and the, the idea the Russians had was that the English are the kings of hooliganism and they wanted to prove that now it was Russia that was the home of hooliganism and. And the, this Russian guy said, oh, we saw a big group of fans with a Birmingham flag and we said to them, we will take your flag or you will have to fight for it. And they thought maybe it was better not to fight. And he, t- he saw this as a great kind of victory. The reality was that would be like a load of blokes in their 60s who support Walsall and had gone along to an England game, uh, as you say, because yeah. that's kind of their, their chance for European trip. And and had just put Birmingham on a flag and won't... Well, they've been annoyed at the cost. Does yeah. it cost quite a lot of money to do that? But but they definitely didn't want to fight. And there is this there is a, a misconception, I think, among certain hooligan groups that the way the English behave is, is abroad, which I personally think is a problem, is a sign that they are looking for trouble, which I don't mm. think they are anymore. And it's a shame that those things happen at those tournaments because one of the best things about the big tournaments is they are very convivial. There is a carnival atmosphere and it does overcome all the kind of nonsense that you hear in the build-up. Same in Brazil, where there were perfectly, not nonsense is the wrong word, but there were perfectly valid strikes in Brazil about corruption, about public mi- misuse of public money, uh, there's trials still going on about it, about the, the waste of money that building World Cup stadiums was compared to you know, when, when hospitals and schools are underfunded. Hugely important social issues. But, st- I mean, the country as a whole and the world in general is still thinking, yeah, all right, that's a fair point. But you've got Colombia in the quarterfinal. What are you thinking about that? And yeah, that—that's yeah. the magic of the World Cup. It does. It kind of con- for that month, a lot, of, a huge pro- proportion of the world's population kind of forgets everything else, and that's—that's yeah. that's kind of the significance of it. Is there any danger though that the World Cup will lose its magic if, at the moment, Rory, you make the point, probably quite rightly, that once the tournament gets underway, you'll forget all the, the corruption about how it was awarded and why it's in Russia in the first place. But if this sort of thing keeps happening, well, people might just fall out of love with the World Cup if it becomes... You know, I, I, I've got a friend who organises a trip for a large group of, of lads to, to go to Euros or World Cups, does it every two years, isn't doing it this year. It's just mm. too much of a hassle, too many problems, too much uncertainty about going to Russia. So if... If they keep taking the World Cup to, to places that are difficult to access and the the frustration about how it's being played in that country continues, then, then maybe people will lose an interest. Like that carnival atmosphere will, will disappear if people aren't willing to travel all around the world and sort of celebrate a festival of football. Yeah, I think the danger is that you, you take it... Not so much where you take it, it's obviously it's difficult to access for people in certain places, but less so in others. Yeah. So in, in Qatar, it is... I mean, I, personally, I don't have a problem with it being in Russia from a sort of historical, geographical point of view. I think Russia does, is a major football nation and yeah. deserves a World Cup. The political side of it, I have more of an issue with and the way they got it. Qatar, clearly ridiculous. Um, but you can make the case that having it in Qatar means it's more accessible for people in the Middle East and, that, yeah. that, and that's fine. That makes but sense. It's, it's, Qatar, particularly any of those... Uh, though, or Qatar, 
um, Dubai and Abu Dhabi are now the centre of the world in terms of air travel. So actually, yep. getting to any one of those three places is incredibly easy for almost the whole world. Yeah, and then you have other issues in terms and, of... And then obviously the whole world goes to Qatar but, and it starts to split at the seams. It, yeah. <laughs> it can't be financially prohibitive. You know, you can't have a situation which we have seen, which we saw with uh, Kiev for the, mm. the Champions League final and we have seen with, uh, with Moscow when... That hosted that city hosted the Champions League final between United and Chelsea. Is that suddenly getting there, you know, on flights was wasn't straightforward, and the cost of hotels skyrocketed. If if attending a World Cup becomes so financially prohibitive to a majority of football fans, then it will lose yeah. that. It, it will lose, lose that festival yeah. feeling. There, there is have been examples of World Cups that have not been particularly well attended, but there are enough people watching it on the television to have that whether they're young and it's their first World Cup or whether they're cynical and they still appreciate it despite that uh, because they get carried away with it they they still end up being successful I mean the 2010 World Cup in South Africa didn't have great crowds for a lot no, of the games no. but they had the Vuvuzelas and you remember the Vuvuzelas not the empty seats and I, as d- a, I don't as remember annoying, either of those things positively even though Vuvuzelas were annoying you still remember the World Cup for something. I've got a Vuvuzela. Have you? Would yeah. you like to? Would you like to? Occasionally, I wake Kate up with it <laughs> <laughs> at, at four a.m. Very close to her ears. But you, you, you know, there Are you is chewing bitong at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, even though it's a, a, it was negative at the time because everyone got really annoyed about it. There is there is something to remember the South Africa World Cup by. There is a thing that is attached to it. You don't remember the fact that people didn't turn up and the, no. there were empty empty seats in the stadium. So if there are empty seats in Russia there may be something else that you remember instead. And so mm. that is how it perpetuates. That is how it is remembered because there are yeah. all these tournaments that people find a way to remember them. Because as Alan said at the beginning of the conversation, mm. it only happens at once every four years. And so the memories are, they last longer yeah. and they are more keenly felt. Well, it's like it's Deli Ali talking about the feeling, even in between games, the anticipation of mm. what's to come. That feeling, you're right, for a month, people do or can forget a lot of what's going on because the World Cup is on. And I, that's, I do remember that, watching the games, but also the feeling... Going to the sh- just seeing what was happening with all the other nations as well. I do think it is a feeling that, that does carry through for the whole tournament. And you don't necessarily have to be there or watching the games. It's that feeling that a World Cup is on. You can feel it in the air, can't you? You, you can, can see it in the, in the apple trees. <laughs> Thanks, Deli. Ch- uh, the- Ch- Chinch said that he thinks international football is terrible. Oh, no, play, the international football that I play, maybe that was to do with the fact this, that I was playing. Is this going to be a tease yeah. for next no, week? Yeah, it, I just, it, I just it, wonder whether... You, you really? Know, can, can you look forward to the World Cup in any way? Or yes, no, I'm really, actually, I'm really looking forward to the World Cup. And the fact that whether England do... I, I just watch it as mm. a, a tournament now. I don't worry about... I don't really care how England do, if they win it or not. I'm just wanting to... Hopefully, it's going to be a great footballing tournament that I'm not working on, so I can just sit back, turn the sound down and watch it. Some of the schadenfreude we spoke about at the beginning about fans of other clubs who delight in, in successful clubs not quite succeeding as much as they want to. There's, there's a sense, isn't there, at the moment that, that the, the jingoism that follows the England team, whether it's amongst fans, whether it's amongst the broadcasters or the, 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 some of the newspapers, there's part of us, I'm sure, which is inside going, well, I, I want to see them fall on their backsides as well because it's quite funny when, <laughs> when they build something up and it goes so completely terribly wrong so the World Cup is a blessed relief from the tribalism of club football but it sounds like also that the World Cup is a breath blessed relief from from FIFA's point of view as well mm. from all the scrutiny that comes uh, so next week we will talk about the football the tactics and how dull the games are going to be in mm-hmm. Russia. But before then, never mind Jack and Ori, what a soccer story. This is when oh. Andy tells us a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. Now, this is interesting. You'll find this interesting. 
Oh, there was a. Uh, we'll we'll was come a, back to you at the end. There was a televisual feast that I enjoyed last night. I, I watched a film, and it was a film, a movie about football. Is that the right? Damned United? Brilliant. Oh, have you seen? Really? Now, yes. I know it's been it's been out for quite a while, but oh yes, since just, many many years. Yeah, so like, how long has it been? Is it good? Ten years since Not it was Not ten made? years, five or six. Is it? Maybe anyway, like anyway, it was. Just, I was just flicking through I'll something to you. watch, and I, I, it was absolutely fantastic. And it reminded me of the one and only time that I met Brian Clough. Eight year, uh, nine years ago. Nine it was years 2009. ago. And it reminded me the only time I ever met Brian Clough. I played against his teams a number of times. Clearly that would happen. Um, but it was the circumstances we met. It was an end of season tour. This is the strange thing. To Australia, the Gold Coast in Australia, to play an indoor six-a-side tournament. Fantastic. On the Gold Coast. What a trip. What a great trip. It was like 10, Did 12 days. Ourselves, Nottingham Forest were there. So, well, but why would you go all the way to Australia to then play an indoor Because it's hot, tournament? It's hot outside. Do you yeah, know what English players are like in the hot? Yes, but anyway, any, I, I just didn't see the sense in that. But <laughs> we were worried you'd get burnt, Chinch. I underneath the hole in the ozone Yeah, layer. easy, easy. So... I was at the, we're at the hotel with Forest and City. It was at the time before I left City for Everton. It must have been late eighties. This was in the summer. So I got the curly finger from Brian Clough. <laughs> but you, you know, it, it's that is not a euphemism. Please. No, no, he that actually and he he did give me the young man, young man, <laughs> come here. And I was abs- I must have been eighteen. Absolutely, t- you can imagine what it. You just you, you hear these people and you see them on the touchline, but you never expect to actually. Meet them. It's like you guys when you met me. Clearly, you were blown away. And never meet you. The same when I met Brian Clough. He had the gear on that you saw him wear on the touchline. Green, t- green, the green sweatshirt oh. on. And it's like somebody. It was like Michael Sheen was playing Brian. This can't really be Brian Clough, a young man. And he asked me, just one sentence: How long is your contract? Um, three years, Mr. Clough. <laughs> That's all I said. And he went, "Good to know." And he just walked away. And that was the only contact. So presumably, had it been less than three Stuart years, Stuart Pearce must have been on rocky ground, <laughs> and he thought, "Who do I, who could I get in here who is could take me again to European glory?" And the young Hinchcliffe was clearly was third on the, the man he had targeted, <laughs> and that happened to be in a hotel in Australia, and there was no other team there, no other left back there. But that's the only time <laughs> I met Brian. But I was apps. Well, you would be, wouldn't you? You look at people who've affected. English football so enormously and Brian Clough is one of the the greatest one of the biggest and all the stuff he came out with is just tremendous but to actually get even that brief conversation with him is something that I will hold on throughout my career to have met Brian Clough and have him ask me about how long my he won the European Cup that guy and he wanted clearly wanted me <laughs> if anybody is chronicling the uh, the soccer stories courtesy of Mr. Andrew Hinchcliffe over the 79 episodes it is now. Mm. I think that's up to about 47 where he talks about clubs that might have bought him, wanted to buy him, but unfortunately it didn't happen. They couldn't have, or simply, it just wasn't going to happen, Brian, so give it up. I should have said said that to him, Mr. Clough. It's not going to happen. Thank you, Andrew. Don't forget how you can get in touch with the podcast at setpiecemenu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, to Rory, to Andy and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon. Rory is upped on his feet and is already starting the food, which is going to be peppers and what, Rory? Just peppers and onions. Pepper, pepper surprise. <laughs> pepper surprise. Is that like your pasta pepper surprise? Pepper four ways, is it? Are we having pepper four ways again? We are, yeah. Yeah, excellent. I, I like I, um, so, so Rory, just on our way to Rory's house for this podcast, he desperately, five minutes before we were all supposed to arrive, anybody get us, get us some peppers en route? 
So it was going to be onions, and now we've got onions and peppers. Courtesy of the co-op in Didsbury. See, the Thanks, problem you co-op. have asking me for... I'm always, I always sat outside for 15 minutes because I didn't want to come in because I was too early. I always arrived so early that I couldn't have got the peppers. It was too, you were too late because to I go was sat outside. On the on the not on the driveway, but on the street. On the and street. I, and I actually yeah. had peppers in the fridge, but by the time I saw the message, Hugh had already stopped by. So I, I left a pepper on the bench in our hallway and have already been texted <laughs> by Katie to say What the hell is this? that mean? Why have something? you left a pepper? What colour was it? Red. Could mean you're angry. Do you, no, do you have a traffic light system? Traffic light system. <laughs> Instead of like <laughs> yellow <laughs> green, a little, a little notice board where you you know you leave notes. Say, oh, I've, I've forgotten to get the milk. Milk. I get it on the way back from work or something like yeah, that. You just leave yeah. a single pepper to say, <laughs> "Red, I'm in a fury with you. Green, we're okay. Amber, you better butt your ideas this up. Could go you're away. sleeping if, in the spare room. If you came home, if you came home from a night out and on the kitchen table, the only thing that was there was a red. You'd read something into that, wouldn't you? You'd, You'd think, head straight to the spare that room. Me, <laughs> something. <laughs>